Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning as we continue along in our series on the top three sixteens of the Bible. We're nearing the end. We just have this and two more to go. Today, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Last week, we did 1 Timothy 3.16, where the Lord was manifested in the flesh and dwelt among us for Christmas. And this week, we're in 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'm going to invite you to please stand as we read together Holy Scripture I'm going to begin in verse. <clears throat> I'm going to begin in, in uh, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 14, and read 17. So this is Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 14 on to verse 17, and this is God's holy word for us, His people. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let's ask Him to bless our time in His word. Father, as we have lifted our voice to You, we ask that You would open Your mouth and speak to us as only You can speak. That You would, by Your Holy Spirit, empower these words to live in our hearts, to ring in our ears. That You would take the truth of Your word, spoken many, many centuries ago, and make it live again in our hearts, that we might receive this as what it truly is, not just the words of Paul, but words from you for us today. Write your truth upon our hearts. You be our teacher, and we'll worship you as we receive the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's only been two or three inventions that have absolutely and radically changed the world and all of history. There are very few candidates for what these inventions might be. Lots of inventions have been important and helpful and have changed lots of things about our lives. But there's just a handful that are so completely important for the whole world that a history of our, of our world, of human history, would be incomplete without them. So just a couple of these. One of these would be the invent, invention of writing. Someone decided one day, let's, let's just arbitrarily make some squiggles on a stone or a tablet, and let's say that squiggle means this sound, and this squiggle means that sound, and when you put these squiggles together, it makes this word we say... And they're like, okay, yeah, let's all agree. This squiggle means that. Okay, now that's a letter. We'll just call that a letter. <laughs> and someone invented an alphabet, and someone invented writing. Not just one person, but cultures invented these things. And now, all of a sudden, you don't have to remember everything. You can write it down. That's big. 
that changes a lot. You can remember a lot more on paper than you can in your head if enough people are writing things down. So having language in written form is massive. Another one involving language would be the book. Not just having a tablet with a couple of things you, you sketch on it, but the invention of an actual book with you know, bindings and pages and all of that that happened in the ancient world. It used to be called a codex. Now we just say book. But it was actually Christians. Some scholars think that Christians were some of the first to actually invent the book before it was on scrolls. But Christians very early on decided, let's, let's move away from scrolls and let's start writing on both sides of the page and let's just glue those pages into a couple of covers. And, and some people think that it could have been Christians who actually came up with the book. That may not be true, but the invention of the book is pretty important. Another one would be the invention of the printing press. Now, instead of every single book that exists on the planet being hand-copied which is what manuscript means from Latin for manually writing it yourself, a handwritten document. Now you can print them, you can mass produce them, and that's what helped spark the Reformation. Fast forward to our day. The digital revolution has changed the world. The internet has absolutely radically changed what life is like in our world. And today I would like us to just by way of introduction, think about some of the side effects of the internet. Positives and negatives. I just sketched out five side effects of the internet. The first, I would say, is boldness. Boldness. There's a nickname for these for some people. They're called keyboard warriors, which means they are way more bold online than they would ever be in person. People online are willing to say things to you more bluntly, frankly, and directly than they would be if we were sitting across the table or or meeting face to face. They might shy away from saying it to your face, but if you're on the other side of their computer monitor, oh, I'm going to let them have it. People are a lot more bold online. If If you have Facebook, you know this. But the second effect of that is rudeness. Rudeness, people are a lot uglier and nastier online. They will tell you things that are offensive and nasty that they would not say to a human being in person. The internet makes people more bold, and it also tends to make them more rude. A third is arrogance. Arrogance, people think that free speech is the same as meaningful speech. I am an American. (laughs) I have the right to say whatever I want, and I'm going to say it. That's true. Say away. (laughs) That doesn't mean that any of us have to listen to you. (laughs) That doesn't mean that what you have to say is necessarily important or meaningful or right or significant just because you get to say it. But we confuse getting to say it with having the right to have someone listen. (laughs) Nope, doesn't work that way. I don't have to listen to you, and you don't have to listen to me. That's the beauty of it. A fourth would be confidence. All I've got to do is Google it. If I have a question, I can have it answered in .07 seconds. Instantly, I can have millions of answers to any question I want. How do I convert this uh, cups into metric? Oh, boom, done. 
Uh, who won the World Series in 1954? Oh, done. I can Google it. Anything I want to know, I can know it in less than a second. As fast as I can type it, that's how fast I can know it. So we have confidence. We can look up anything. We can know anything. We can have all information, everything we want right here, right now. I had a philosophy professor in college who said that, that Google is two snippets short of omniscience. That it knows just slightly less than God does. <laughs> Google has all the answers, right? So we're, we have great confidence that we can just know anything we want to know right away. And the last thing that I want to focus on as a side effect of the internet would be skepticism. Now, this might seem to conflict with what I just said about confidence. I can just look it up and I can know anything. And I can just trust what I look up. But yet there's this deeply skeptical side of our culture. On the truly important matters, you don't just Google it. On the truly important issues of our culture and our society or of our faith, when we Google it, our first instinct is, I don't believe it. We are deeply suspicious of these big buzzwords we hear right now. Misinformation, disinformation, deceit, censorship, cover-ups, lies, misdirection. Now, we've always been skeptical of authority figures, but it seems like skepticism with the Internet goes to an all-time high, especially these days. Why? Well, it's because we want the truth. And we want to know it's the truth. Sometimes we want it super quick. Just Google it. Just get, that, just get the microwave version of information and hit the Wikipedia article and you know. But on the really important stuff, we've got to go deeper than that. And we want to believe the stuff we're reading. We want to find the stuff that we can trust. We want the truth. And we want some person or some group or source of information or some institution in our world that we can count on to always be honest with us. And always tell us the truth 100% of the time. Man, wouldn't that be great? A medical expert who only gives you the 100% undiluted truth every time. Or a politician or a pastor or a plumber or a mechanic or a photographer or name the profession, name the sector of our world. Who's going to be able to tell me the whole truth every single time? And I, can, I don't have to doubt it. I don't have to be skeptical. Where do we find the truth This is why we ask the skeptic's ultimate question. Says who? Well, I believe this is true. Yeah, says who? Well, then you look it up. Well, I don't trust that. <laughs> says who? Well, you should, you should believe this. Says who? You know, you shouldn't act like that. Says who? And you don't need to be going there and spending your money on that. Says who? Don't watch that TV. Says who? Like... We don't just accept, just because you say so, who are you to tell me? I want to know, who's the authority you're appealing to? On what basis do you say this? On whose authority are you saying I should or shouldn't do something? Says who? You know, this was the ultimate question at the bottom of the issues in the Protestant Reformation. It was ultimately a question of, oh yeah, says who? Well, you're going to go to purgatory. Says who? 
You know, you should confess your sins to a priest. Yeah, says who? Well, the Pope. Well, that's not good enough anymore. Who's he to tell me anything? I don't think he gets it right all the time. <gasps> and then they start fighting. <laughs> and you start calling into question all of the authorities that are in the church. And you start saying, you know, I don't think they always tell us the truth. I don't think they always get it right. And so we're going to ask the question, says who? On whose authority? Who gets to decide? Who has the last word? Who has the last word? The answer of the reformers to that question in matters of the church and the reformation and the answers for us today are exactly the same. The answer is the same as the answer that Paul gives to Timothy in our passage this morning. Paul points Timothy to Scripture. And he tells Timothy that the Scriptures, the Bible, God's Word, is the last word. So as we look at the text, let's look first at Scripture as Paul's last word. This is Paul's last word that we have in 2 Timothy. And this is true in at least three senses. Three things, three ways that this passage is Paul's last word. The first is this. 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter that he writes before he is martyred. Before he gets executed by the Roman state for being a Christian. As he sits in his prison cell, which isn't like prisons today, it's a hole. It's just a hole that you're in. And as you're waiting under guard for your sentence to be carried out, which means some rough Roman soldier grabs you by the neck and jerks you up out of that hole and pushes you out to wherever they're going to cut your head off or whatever it is they're going to do to you. As Paul is waiting for that soldier to come get him and end his life, officially, publicly, shamefully, as a criminal, he has time to fire off one more letter to Timothy. Now we got 1 Timothy, and now we come to 2 Timothy. It's the last thing Paul writes before he's killed. And Paul knows it. And he says as much in chapter 4 of this letter, verses 6 to 8. He says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, I, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He doesn't mean I'm getting out of jail. He means I'm departing this life. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was preparing himself, stealing his soul to prepare for the moment when he's put to death. Timothy, I'm already being poured out. I'm going to give my life in sacrifice for the Lord any day now. So this 
is Paul's last word in the sense that this is the last writing Paul ever produces and it's the last thing Paul ever writes that gets into the Bible. Now, in our Bibles, in the order of the books, Titus comes next and another letter to Philemon. But Paul wrote those two letters before he wrote this one. So our letters of Paul are not in chronological order of when he wrote them. Second Timothy is the last thing he writes before he dies. It's the last piece of Scripture that Paul writes. It's Paul's last word in the Bible. The second sense in which this is Paul's last word is this is Paul's last word of instruction to Timothy. It's not just the last thing he writes that gets included in Scripture. It's also his last communication with his chosen, favorite, number one apprentice. Timothy has been Paul's project since Timothy was a child, since Timothy was a young boy. He came under the leadership and mentorship of Rabbi Paul, the Apostle Paul, And Timothy has learned and grown under Paul his whole ministry. Now he's a young man. Paul is an older man. Paul has mentored Timothy through his whole ministry, but now Timothy's going to be on his own. Paul urges Timothy to remember, to imitate him, to practice, to preserve, and to pass on everything he's learned from Paul. This is his last words to Timothy. If you knew that your life was going to end in the next couple of days, and you had one last chance to write one letter to one special person, what are you going to say in that letter? What's your final word going to be to that one special person you would write to? And Paul knows Timothy is now going to be by himself, on his own. Paul's been there for Timothy his whole ministry, but now he's going to be gone. Timothy can't turn to Paul for advice and encouragement and prayer. He can't say, Paul, am I doing this right? Paul, how would you say this? How would you do this? Paul, help me. He can't go to Paul anymore, and Paul knows that. And so two times in this letter, he urges Timothy, don't forget everything you learned when you were with me. You're going to need that, Timothy. He says this in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he calls Timothy his child, like Paul is a father who is training up his child to take over the family business. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Take what you've learned, remember it, put it into practice, and then teach it to others. It's your turn to find someone to disciple. It's your turn to teach someone else and train someone else and pass on what you learned from me. And then back in chapter 3, he says in verse 10, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, and at Lystra. In other words, you have been with me through all these cities. You have watched me night and day, waking and sleeping, how I suffer, how I endure, how I pray, how I live my life. You've watched me, Timothy. You've watched me every step of the way. And he says in verse 13, while evil people And imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He urges Timothy, don't forget what you've learned from me. This is Paul's last words to Timothy. But then there's one more sense, a third sense in which this is Paul's last word. Because now Timothy has to face a question. Okay, I've got everything Paul showed me and everything Paul taught me, and I've got to remember that and practice that. But what if I still have a question? What if I still have a need? How am I actually going to do this thing, this ministry that Paul has called me to do? Yeah, he's taught me and trained me, but where can I turn now? What do I have that will stay with me for the rest of my ministry now that Paul's gone? On whose say-so can Timothy rely? Who gets the last word in Timothy's life and in Timothy's ministry and in Timothy's churches? What is Timothy's ultimate source of truth and authority? And Paul's last word to Timothy is not Paul himself as the ultimate authority. Even though Paul's an apostle of Jesus and is able to write Scripture, he doesn't say that he is the ultimate source for Timothy. Paul's last word to Timothy is Scripture. Look again at verses 13 to 15. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, be skeptical, Timothy, of everything else. Imposters will go from bad to worse. The misinformation and the deceit will increase. How can you cut through all the competing voices that chatter and clamor and claim to be true? Listen to me, listen to me. Where can you go for that one voice you are to heed that will always be a source of truth and authority that you can count on to tell you the truth 100% of the time? He continues, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and then verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He points Timothy, not ultimately to what he learned from Paul, but he says, Timothy, don't forget what I taught you, but don't you forget the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, because that's what has given you your wisdom. That's what has given you faith. That is what your faith is built upon. That is what is able to give you what you need to find salvation through faith in Christ. Scripture is your source of wisdom. The skills you need and the insights you need to believe and to obey as God calls you to do. It's Scripture that's able to awaken and enliven and sustain your faith. It's Scripture that gives you Christ and shows you the way of salvation. This is what you are to remember, Timothy. This is where you are to stand. This is Paul's last word to Timothy. Remember what I've taught you, and remember where my teaching came from. It's all founded on God's Word, not Paul's. At the end of the day, Paul is not Timothy's Lord. Only one Lord can speak with that kind of authority. 
And so Paul points Timothy to the only place you can hear the Lord speak, and that's the sacred writings, Holy Scripture. In our main text, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy why Scripture is the last word. In other words, Scripture is Paul's last, highest, final word to Timothy, but now he goes on to tell him why. Why is Scripture the final word? And he talks about what the words of Scripture are. And he says two things, two reasons that Scripture is the last word. And the first is where Scripture comes from, and the second is what it's good for. Where it comes from and what it's good for. Or its divine origin and its divine operation. So first, its divine origin, where it comes from. He says in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is exhaled from God. Breathed out. The older translations say inspired. Inspired by God. But that word is, it really is an interesting word because it does mean something like exhaling, pushing the breath out, breathed out by God. And in fact, you can, you can do this yourself. You can hold your hand up close to your mouth, and as you're talking, if your hand's close enough, without actually touching, if your hand's close enough, you can feel the air tapping and landing on your hand. You can feel your breath on your hand. So when you speak, you always exhale. There's always breath coming out of your mouth every, every time you say anything. You're vibrating the air, and the breath is coming out of your mouth. And so to say that Scripture is God-breathed is a way of saying a couple different things. The first is that Scripture is God's breath, God's speaking, God's voice. Every word of Scripture comes from God, is exhaled by God, is a word out of His mouth. Not just a word out of Paul's or Isaiah's or Moses. But it's a puff of air out of God's mouth. And what does God breathe? (laughs) Well, the word for breath in Greek is the exact same word for spirit. Wind and breath and spirit is all the same word in Greek. And you can play on those different meanings. And to say that this scripture is God-breathed, it means it comes from the very Spirit of God, which you can hear in the word inspiration. Spirit is the key idea. The Holy Spirit of God is breathed forth. God breathes upon the authors of scripture and causes them to think his thoughts and to put them down on the page. The Holy Spirit does this. That's a definition for the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration means the divine influence upon the human authors that causes what they write to be the words of God. And God moves upon the human authors of Scripture to produce what He wants them to say. This is uh, repeated in Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Someone didn't just make it up on the spot. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God breathes His Spirit upon the human author. And the human author is then, what, possessed, filled with the Spirit, in the Spirit's grip. And so the Holy Spirit leads the human author through his own personality and vocabulary and style and writing style and life experience. You actually get the personality of the author on the page. But what comes through is not merely a human word, but a divine word. And this is what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul says, you hear the word in human language, Greek, Hebrew, English. You hear the word in, in human language. But what it really is, is the Word of God in human words. That's what the inspiration of Scripture means. And the implication of this is that if it's God's voice and it's God speaking, it must have God's divine power and truth and authority behind it. It's got God's truth and authority and power behind it. It has divine qualities. That's the first reason that it's Scripture is the last word is because it comes from God. It has a divine source. It's not just the, something that comes from the minds of ancient people 2,000 years ago, but it's the living word of God for all people and for us today. And the second reason Scripture is the last word in our passage is that it's profitable. It's profitable. This is what the Scripture is good for. This is its divine operation. Look at the rest of the verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's given by God. Scripture is given by God and is used for these four things in Timothy's ministry and in the Christian life. It is profitable Useful, good for teaching. That's doctrine. For reproof. That's rebuke. For correction. That's you're in error and you need to be corrected. And then for training in righteousness, exercising those spiritual muscles, getting better and better at growing in your walk with the Lord in obedience to His will. Training in righteousness. Scripture is good for all four of these things. And these four things cover everything we need in the church and in the Christian life. We need to know what to believe. Well, it teaches us. We need to be told what a fool we are when we're sinning and straying. And Scripture can punch us and get us back on track for reproof, for rebuke. We, we have all sorts of errors in our thinking all sorts of sinful errors in our attitudes and the way we behave and the way we decide and the values we have and the priorities we set for ourselves and the things we do and say. And so we need to be corrected. Hey, that's an error. You need to be corrected. You're going this way. You ought to be going that way. That's not how you do that. This is how you do that. Well, Scripture does that. It corrects us when we're wrong. It rebukes us when we're in the wrong and misbehaving and misbelieving and sinning. It teaches us the truth, and then it trains us 
It's our workout. I mean, it's New Year's, right? We're all going to, to the gym this week, right? With our new gym membership. And it's going to last this week. And then we'll just pay for, for our absence. Because <laughs> we won't go after this. Right? Well, are you, what kind of training do we need this year? Yeah, bodily training's good for, for a while. But this is the training of the soul. This is spiritual exercise. And Scripture is able to do that. It's the only trainer you need for your soul. God is able to do all these things through the Word that He has provided for us. It has the power, the divine power to accomplish all these things. If we'll just use it. There's... There's 30 of these on the shelf in most of our houses. If we'll just pull off one, even a bad translation, read faithfully and prayerfully is better than not reading the best translation at all. (laughs) If you've got the best translation in the world sitting there, but you never crack it open, it does you no good to own it, but not read it. We have everything we need provided for us. Divine wisdom to give us supernatural faith to teach us and train us to live as God's people. It's all sitting there on the shelf, ready to be put into practice in this new year. And that takes us to the last point this morning. We've seen Paul's last word is Scripture. We've seen why Scripture is Paul's last word. It's inspired by God and it's powerful to do everything that we need in our Christian lives and in the church. But it's also God's last word. It's God's last word. One last thing that Paul says Scripture does that makes it not just his last word, not just Paul's last word, but God's last word is this. He says in verse 17 that the Bible, the word of God, fully equips us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for these four things. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, Paul is writing this specifically to Timothy and for Timothy. And so when he says the man of God, he means a pastor like Timothy. This is what you need, Timothy, To be the pastor you need to be. To fulfill the ministry God's given you. This is what you need. You will be fully equipped. You will be complete with this word that God has given you. But it doesn't just apply to Timothy. This is God's word for all of us as well. And in our own Christian lives, we will be fully furnished, totally supplied, adequate, sufficient, complete with the word God has given us. We will be fully equipped. You have all the equipment you need to be the Christian God calls you to be in 2023. You have everything you need. As an example, imagine that you need to ride a bike. Okay? You got to get a bike. God has given you the bike. He's given you the helmet. He's given you the gear. He's given you the outfit. He's paved the road. He's cleared the traffic. Everything you need to ride that bike has been provided for you. You are fully equipped to ride the bike. He's even given you pastors like Timothy. He's even given you the church to teach you how to ride the bike. So there's no reason that we can't ride the bike. We are fully equipped to ride. It's just time for you to decide to start pedaling. To get on the bike 
and start writing. Which means opening the book and begin to read. Opening the book and beginning to read. You will be fully equipped with this word. You will be sufficiently supplied with this word. The only thing God has given to his church that is God-breathed is Scripture. Now, if God thought you needed two things that were God-breathed, he would have given you two things. If God thought you needed four things that were God-breathed, he would give us what we need. He would give us all four things. But he gave us just one, which means in his evaluation, that's all we need. So we need not look for other sources of infallible truth, of divine revelation, of God-breathed authoritative word. We don't have to look anywhere else. God's only given us one. And because he's only given us one, it is enough. Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient, and it is powerful, and it is mighty to teach us and help us and empower us to do everything we need to do and to believe everything God calls us to believe. Everything we need for life and godliness, Scripture supplies. Scripture, it says, is sufficient for every good work. Every good work you could do, whether it's believing the right thing or doing the right thing, every good work that you're called to do, Scripture is sufficient to equip you to do it and teach you how to do it and correct you when you mess it up and rebuke you when you refuse to do it and put you right. Scripture is able to do those things. Christian, in our world of independent so-called fact-checkers and fear of misinformation and approved lies from the authorities we don't trust... In a world where lots of different voices are telling us, you can trust me, you can believe me, and we're not sure where to turn for reliable information, where can you turn in your life for the honest-to-God truth? In your life, who or what gets the last word about your beliefs and your choices, about your commitments and your values and your actions. What final word do you stand on? Do you stand on some other person, an organization, a political party, your favorite philosopher, a pundit, an author, an organization, a group, me, the church? Who do you rely on finally and ultimately for what you should believe and what you should do and how you should live? There are a lot of options out there, but none of them can be trusted to tell you the truth the whole time, 100% of the time, even the best-intentioned ones. We all err in many ways, but there is one thing God has given us that will not deceive us, that will not lead us astray, and that is sufficient to teach us everything we need, and that is the Holy Scriptures. We have God's last word on the subject. And that is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in a world where it is sometimes difficult to know what is reliable and what is firm and sure, when our confidence feels shaky, Lord, we ask that you would 
Increase our confidence and our trust in your word. May that be the thing we stand on this year. May may that be the thing we commit to learning more about, to reading more of, to digging more into, to talking about more, to putting it into practice explicitly and overtly in our lives, that we might deepen our discipleship this year by deepening our knowledge of and our love for the Bible. I ask that you would do that for me, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, as an individual person who needs your word every day. Would you do that for me? Would you do that for our elders, trustees, deacons, volunteers, and leaders? And may it trickle on down to every single person who's connected in our church. May we be a church that stands boldly on your word, knowing that you do not deceive us and that your word is powerful and true and it's everything we need for life and for godliness to bring glory to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.